The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. ...beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. This is a strange week in the United States of America, and I know what you're thinking. This is a whole strange era in the United States of America, but this week, happens to be when we celebrate a really beautiful idea and what ought to be a thoroughly beautiful holiday. It's called Thanksgiving. It has some historic uh, (laughs) heritage. And it's when we're supposed to think about all the things for which we're grateful. And, you know, that is a very cool mental health and spiritual health tool all year long to just bring to mind how much is working, how much is good, and how really fortunate we are to be starring in our own lives in this magnificent production called Life on Earth. And yet, this particular holiday brings with it a tradition of eating an animal, Well, lots of holidays have those, but this one is unique in that just about everybody eats the same animal. So that means that for one species, this week that is supposed to be so beautiful, a celebration of abundance and appreciation, turns out to be something else for a great many turkeys. So I am very conflicted this week. There's a part of me that wants to say, oh my gosh, aren't you grateful for tons and tons of stuff? And isn't it so cool? And how wonderful to get to see family that we maybe don't get to see very often. But the other part of me is saying, I know that in the middle of the table, probably, is somebody who wanted to live. Well, If that's what your Thursday is going to look like, God bless you getting through it and being nice and being kind and shining your great vegan glow all around and about. 
And if you're able to have a fully vegan Thanksgiving, oh, delighted I am for you. I'm actually going to have one of those. I usually cook, but because my daughter is off touring as an aerialist, we're going to go out to one of the wonderful restaurants in New York City that accommodates people who eat like us and who really care about turkeys. I'm Victoria Moran your host for the Main Street Vegan Program. It is absolutely delightful to have you with us today. Let me do the introduction and then say welcome to this man I am so excited to be speaking to. Best known for his work in bioethics and his role as one of the intellectual founders of the modern animal rights movement, Professor Singer has been called the most influential living philosopher. He gained recognition in the 1970s with his groundbreaking book, Animal Liberation. His newest book is The Most Good You Can Do, How Effective Altruism is Changing Ideas About Living Ethically. Welcome, Peter Singer. Hi, Victoria. Nice to be with you. It is wonderful to be with you. I I had tweeted that I hope I don't get all all gushy fangirl-like because when I was introduced to your work, I was the age when fangirldom was a perfectly normal thing to be, and I can remember standing in the living room at the American Vegan Society headquarters. Someone handed me Animal Liberation. I read it in a day and a half, and the idea, number one, that you were a philosopher and really did that, I thought only Aristotle could do that, and that you had come up with this incredible new way of thinking about animals. So I would love to talk to you today about all the things that you're doing now, but for my readers who read Animal Liberation and and for whom Peter Singer is Animal Liberation, can you take us back a bit and tell us what happened that brought about that thought process and that book? Well, what happened was that uh, I met a vegetarian, uh, and I'm talking about 1970, so this was a very unusual thing. Um, Really, there weren't any vegetarians around, at least in Western societies. Maybe there were some in India, but uh, I was was in Oxford in England at the time, and I'd grown up in Australia, and uh, neither in Australia nor very much in in England did one come across vegetarians. but I met one who, and I asked him why he was a vegetarian, and he gave me a very straightforward answer, no, no, no mysterious uh, things or uh, anything that I couldn't relate to. He just said he didn't think we were right to treat animals the way they get treated in order to be turned into the meat that I was at that particular moment, because this was a luncheon conversation, um, had on my plate. Uh, and I asked him what he meant by that, and he told me, that animals were, uh, many of the animals were being brought indoors and were uh, confined in big sheds, were very crowded, uh, and were treated just as things, basically, as as machines for converting cheap grain to more expensive flesh. Or uh, So I didn't know anything about that. I'd never heard of this uh, industrial farming at that stage. Uh, but I looked into it, and I found that he was absolutely right, that there was a huge commercial system springing up that just premised on the idea that whatever you could do to animals to turn them into meat more cheaply was what you had to do to stay in business. Uh, and 
so I started exploring the ethics uh, of how we ought to treat animals, which was also not something I'd really thought of prior to that. Uh, and uh, eventually I became convinced that we couldn't justify this and that we needed to rethink the whole of our attitudes to animals, where animals fitted into the circle of ethics uh, and how we ought to live, including how we ought to eat. So prior to this time, did you like animals? Had you given them much thought? Not a lot, really, I'd have to say. Uh, when I was a small child, we had a cat in the home. Um, but I think the cat died when I was about five or six, and we didn't get any more companion animals after that point. Um, oh, I had some goldfish, I guess. They were pretty, but a bit hard to relate to goldfish. Um, and... Uh, uh, no, I was not somebody who was particularly concerned with animals at all. And uh, growing up in Australia, where uh, meat was plentiful and inexpensive, um, I you know, was a regular part of, of what I ate, um, at least probably twice a day. So did you develop the animal rights concept first, or did you stop eating meat first? Uh... Well, I wouldn't say I developed, um, I, I, let's, let's not talk about animal rights really, but I think I developed the idea that we can't just exclude animals from our moral consideration, that, that the, what we do to animals matters morally. Um, perhaps in some sense I'd always believed that, but I'd never really thought about it very much and I'd not really explored its implications. Uh, so clearly I'd, I'd, I'd got to the stage uh, of thinking, we're not justified in treating animals the way we treat them in, in factory farms in particular um, before I stopped eating meat. So when you did this, you were already, do we call this a, a moral philosopher? Is that how you would have described no, yourself? I was a graduate student at the time. Um, graduate student. So I was studying moral philosophy. I certainly wouldn't have called myself a moral <laughs> philosopher uh, at that stage of my career. Uh, yeah, but that's the term, you know, moral philosopher or ethicist, some people say nowadays. Um, yes. I guess that's so what I do. So tell me about that. What what kind of a, a young guy were you that this would be the field of study you would follow? And, and I'm asking this partly because I, I studied religions, and everybody looked at me like, huh? <laughs> How are you going to get a job doing that? And I knew philosophy majors, but I didn't know any of them who went on to become philosophers. Can you just walk us yes, through well, a little of that? Also, when, I, when I said I wanted to do a graduate degree in philosophy, he also looked at me and said, how are you going to earn a living by doing that? Um, because previously I thought I was going to go on and do law. Uh, I mean, I, I did some philosophy as part of my undergraduate degree, and that was fine, you know, broaden your, broaden your interests, get a bit of an understanding of other thinkers, I uh, did philosophy along with history and the language. Um, but when it got to the point of doing a graduate degree in it, yes, uh, that was a bit strange. But I got a scholarship to do the graduate degree, and that at least meant I could earn a little bit of income or at least you know, pay my way for, for doing it. So, yes, that bought me some extra time. Um, and in fact... I've never been unemployed since, right? I, I, <laughs> I did manage to get a job after finishing the, my degree at Oxford, so uh, I was able to answer that question to my father's satisfaction, I suppose. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Yeah. Do you have any sense how many people in the world call themselves philosophers? 
No, I, you know, it's, it's a bit arbitrary. You know, if you're if you're an academic um, teaching philosophy, it's a bit arbitrary whether you call yourself a professor of philosophy um, or a philosopher. And I think there would be some people who would say, "I'm a professor of philosophy rather than a, a philosopher." Um, I I suppose that you know I, I am a professor of philosophy, of course, too. Um, I I teach philosophy. That's a large part of what I do, but. Because I write a lot of things that are my own thoughts and my own arguments that I put on paper, um, and I give a lot of talks about that as well, um, I think that's perhaps what makes me a philosopher rather than um, uh, simply a professor of philosophy. Oh, I would definitely say so based on your, your body of work. So, Professor Singer, when you look out at the world as it is right now, what do you see is the one or perhaps what are the two or three most critical problems that we face? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you three of them. I think uh, one which is you know, absolutely critical in terms of the timing is climate change. I think uh, we are doing damage to the planet right now um, and that damage is going to have very serious effects on everybody who lives on this planet and every animal as well uh, for a very long time to come, uh, uh, you know, centuries to come. And we can still mitigate that damage, uh, make it less than it might be if we drastically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we probably can't prevent it altogether. So, you know, getting together and all doing something about it is a, a major moral challenge. Um, the second big challenge, I think, is uh, global poverty. We have made some significant progress on that uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, but still, we have around 800 million people living in extreme poverty by uh, standards set by the World Bank, which is uh, roughly living on, on $2 per day. Uh, and... Uh, I think that's something of a scandal that we have that many people uh, so poor when we also have so many people who are so affluent. And I think you know, it's, it's a moral challenge that faces each of us. Uh, you know, what, what are we going to do about that? And there are things that we can do about that as individuals. Uh, and the third is what we started talking about, um, the way we treat uh, tens of billions of animals, uh, the number of animals killed uh, for food each year is alone is about 74 billion so that's almost 10 times the world's entire population being killed every year and uh, being mistreated before they killed as well mostly so i think that that's a, a a third huge issue well obviously the third issue uh it could be addressed of quite well by widespread adoption of, of vegan living and, and climate change as well, uh, would see some change there. What about the second one? Are our food choices, are our lifestyle choices uh, connected to global poverty? Yes, they are in, in various ways. Uh, one of them you've already mentioned because climate change will have its most severe impact on, on people in poverty because they have the fewest resources to move away if, uh, for example, sea level rises or if the rainfalls fail and they can't grow food where they live. So um, certainly, uh, and as you said, what we eat has an impact on our 
climate change through our um, considerable greenhouse gas emissions that, that come from meat. Uh, but perhaps the, the major way in which our food choices uh, affect people in extreme poverty is that we are uh, feeding most of the grain and soybeans that we produce in the world to animals. And when we do that, we get back only a small fraction of the food value that uh, we have in those uh, vast quantities of, of grain and soybeans. And if instead of uh, feeding them to animals and getting back uh, you know, maybe 10% in some case, maybe maybe 20 or even 30%, but generally not more than that, um, so wasting at least 70% of the food value, if instead of doing that, we uh, were to eat plants directly and get the food value directly, uh, we would contribute to lower grain prices around the world, which would no doubt help people to be able to buy enough to eat, people in poverty. Um, and uh, we would also protect the environment because there'd be less need for us to clear rainforest to produce more beef, um, less need for us to grow so much grain even. So some of that could return to forest. Around the time that Animal Liberation was published, there was a very popular book, Diet for a Small Planet, that was really focused on the world hunger issue and, and how raising animals for foods was so wasteful. But we've gotten away from that. We almost never hear about that anymore. Do you know why? Well, um, specifically with regard to Diet for a Small Planet, um, I think there have been some criticisms of uh, the recipes in there and the emphasis on what's called <laughs> yes. complementarity, right? The idea that we have to mix different plant sources in order to get enough uh, balanced protein. I think uh, the nutritionists nowadays tell us that we don't have to be that careful about mixing them at every meal. That you know, uh, if we have different plant sources over a day or a week, we're going to be okay. So um, that's one criticism of the, the book. But in terms of the uh, idea of feeding the planet. I suppose the the counter argument was economic. Um, that is, it was saying, look, if we don't feed these grains and soybeans to animals, uh, there won't be a market for them, so they won't be grown. So it's not really going to feed the poor who can't afford to buy it. Uh, now that argument, I think, has some truth in it, in that certainly if we were to stop feeding grain and, and soy to animals, the, the price would fall and there would be less produced, which would be a very good thing for the environment, of course. But um, but I think also there would be a decline in, in grain prices and for some of the poor at least, that would make it more feasible for them to buy some when they needed it. So uh, I, think the, I think the book still has a significant point to make, which is perhaps being neglected now. Mm, yes. I, here's still sometimes people will say, oh, you're an animal person. Why don't you care about people? When to me, it's so obvious that, that to really get to be someone who cares about non-humans, you kind of move through caring about humans, that that's important too, and, and very often important first. What do you do with that question? Yes, I, I point out to them that uh, the animal people that I know care a lot more about people than most of the non-animal people I know. Uh, I think they tend to go together. Uh, that is, people who care about animals are also likely to care about people. Um, people who don't care about people um, are quite likely not to care about animals either. 
there are some exceptions, you know. I'm not saying that this is a 100% rule, but um, uh, I've met such a lot of wonderful people in the animal movement who are also dedicated to, to working for people. Um, to give you just one example, um, my great friend who uh, sadly is no longer with us, uh, Henry Spira, who was, I think, the, the leading animal strategist uh, for the animal movement in the last quarter of the 20th century. Uh, he's the person who is responsible for the fact that you can buy cosmetics now that truthfully say they were not tested on animals. Um, so uh, he you know, he came to animals relatively late in his career and, and he marched in the South for civil rights in the in the 60s uh, alongside African-Americans. Uh, he'd fought for uh, unionists. Uh, he'd been a, a merchant seaman and uh, had seen how corrupt the merchant seaman's union was, how, how the union bosses were making money, essentially getting bribes from the bosses for selling out the workers. And he... he uh, tried to form a union re reform movement. Uh, he did a lot of things for people. Um, uh, but basically what he was, you know, what he said was, he's on the side of the weak and the powerless. And uh, then he realized that, uh, after all, it's not only some humans who are weak and powerless, but animals are also weak and powerless. Maybe they're the, the most powerless uh, facing brutality and exploitation. And uh, so he started working for them uh, as well. And I, right. I think that's you know, not at all an unusual story. Yes, definitely one of the bright lights. And you're right, there are so many. Sometimes I'll be out for dinner with a handful of people who are involved in this work, and I'll look around that table and think, am I surrounded by saints or angels? <laughs> and I know we're okay. all very human uh, with uh, clay feet in our non-leather shoes. And yet, um, it, it's a wonderful uh, wonderful calling and great people. So as an ethicist, and I do in, in the next segment uh, want to get into effective altruism and all the many things that you're doing now, but as an ethical philosopher, can you define an ethical life? It's not easy to define an ethical life. You can only define it in broad terms. You really need to then get into discussions of what particular practices are ethical. But, but I think an ethical life, uh, if I do have to put it in a sentence, is one lived with an eye on the good of everybody affected by your actions. And again, by everybody, I mean uh, human or non-human. So, uh, so you, you, need, you need to be thinking about, am I making the world a better place for all of the sentient beings in it now? and for all of those who are going to exist in future. Mm. So what about this week? What about tomorrow here in the States where a lot of people who have decided that they are not going to harm animals or, or support the killing of animals are going to be with people they love and there will be a dead animal on the table? What, what's the ethical way to respond to a situation like that? So you're talking about people who are vegetarians or vegans themselves normally, but but yes. who have to who, go who, who are going to be to around to people who are they not want to be with their family, and, and and the family itself is not. Is that right? right? And the and the turkey, the family, the turkey, and the vegan. That sounds like yeah. a book. I don't know if it would be a very good one. Or a movie, maybe too. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, 
Well, that's difficult. Um, you know, I have to. So I'm not American, as you, you and your listeners can probably hear. I'm, I'm from Australia, so you know we don't do Thanksgiving in Australia. But, but after I became a vegetarian, when we did have these family occasions, uh, my family would have a vegetarian meal when I was there. It's not that they all became vegetarians, but they just thought, out of respect for my views, they don't have to eat meat at every meal. Um, now, I suppose at Thanksgiving, maybe people feel somehow there has to be a turkey. I, obviously, I think that that's a mistake. I think you can have a great Thanksgiving without uh, turkey or without any kind of meat, and that's what I and my friends will be doing tomorrow. Uh, but it's that if your family is a bit more hardline about that and say, no, we're not going to drop the turkey just because you think we shouldn't be having this dead bird sitting in the middle of the table, it's it's tough. I mean, uh, you're balancing up the wanting to be with those you love and care about on a family occasion and uh, not wanting to really see this this uh, corpse of the bird on the table that it, it will spoil your your Thanksgiving. I think really I, I would say, you know, that's something that individuals have to decide. I mean, are they able to simply look at and enjoy the the various trimmings and the other things that will be on the table? Um, or is it really going to ruin the whole occasion and they're just going to get angry and not get on well with their family anyway? Mm-hmm. So I, I can see people going both ways here. I can see people saying, um, you know, yeah, okay, I want to be with the family. I'll forget about that thing in the middle of the table um, and I'll just sort of pretend it doesn't exist. And I can see people saying, you know, well, look, if if you're not prepared to accommodate me on this family occasion, then I'll go and find some of my vegetarian friends and have Thanksgiving with them and I'll be happy to come back and talk to you in some other meal where you don't have a dead bird in the middle of the table. I love your thought process and also allowing people to find their own way. And listeners, just before we pause for break, I want to send you to the uh, Main Street Vegan blog this week. It's written by uh, one of our Main Street Vegan Academy graduates. And it's about the way one vegan couple do Thanksgiving. Stacey J. Anderson, PhD, is the writer. And I'm going to give you a hint about what they do. It's the word mycology. (laughs) You know what that means? Listen to the show that I did with uh, Sweet Potato Soul, Janae Claiborne. She talked about mycology. See if maybe that's something you might want to do next to Thanksgiving. We'll be back after these messages with more from Professor Peter Singer. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, Please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with Paulette Pipe. 
So as always, we begin our time of meditation by first taking account of what we're feeling, those sights that we're seeing, those sensations that we're experiencing, and each breath that we breathe. Notice where in your body you're experiencing those sensations. Let your breathing find its own rhythm. As we begin the process of letting go, the process of relaxation. Remember why we're here. To hear more from Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness, visit the archive section at unityonlineradio.org. Indian saint and mystic Kabir is quoted as saying, One drop of divine love can turn you to gold. Immerse yourself in the work of Kabir with acclaimed poet, author, and spiritual teacher Andrew Harvey in his book, Turn Me to Gold, 108 Poems of Kabir. Andrew shares the powerful and timeless words of Kabir in a way that is accessible to all with beautiful photography by Brett Hurd. This is a book you will turn to again and again. Available now at Amazon.com or Unity.org shop. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer or call 816-969-2000. Tune into Everyday Attraction with Ray Zander every Friday at 12 p.m. Central here on Unity Online Radio. Take a deep dive into the teachings of Abraham and discover how to make the law of attraction work for you in your life. Each week, Ray goes into the heart of understanding the power of our emotions and how to become conscious co-creators. Learn how to release resistant thoughts and live life to the fullest. Find out more at everydayattraction.com. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so honored to be here today with Professor Peter Singer, author of the classic Animal Liberation, and his newest book is The Most Good You Can Do, How Effective Altruism is Changing Ideas About Living Ethically. And I do want to do a shout out to Dr. Charles Camozzi at Fordham University, who arranged the introduction uh, so that we could have a Professor Singer on the show. And I just want to ask you a question about that. I, I know Charlie somewhat, and he, he's been a guest on the program. So listeners, you can look that program up and uh, listen to another wonderful ethicist uh, talking on some of these topics. So Charlie is is Roman Catholic and comes, I think, at ethics from a little bit of a different vantage point from yours, and yet he admires you enormously. How do ethicists get along who come from different ways of looking at ethics? 
Yeah, well, this is one of the things about ethics and about philosophy generally uh, that I wish more people would would get. Uh, that in this very polarized society that we live in, there are people who value reason and argument and can respect and recognize others who they think are reasoning well, even if they end up coming to different conclusions. And I think that's the way Charlie Camosi and I regard each other. Uh, we well, we come to similar conclusions on some issues, you know, such as the treatment of animals, why we should not be eating them, why factory farming is wrong, all of those things. We come to different views on abortion. Um, uh, but I invite Charlie to come to the, some of the classes that I give and to state his view because I think there's no greater educational experience than hearing two people who are prepared to reason and argue about uh, different positions and do so in a in a civil way that uh, tries to expose the the basis of the arguments and the basis of the reasons so um so that's why we can we can get on even though uh yeah some areas we agree we also agree for example about global poverty and what we ought to be doing about that um and other areas we will continue to disagree on uh but we understand each other's position and um we don't, you know, you should be able to recognize that uh, sincere people can disagree with you. Yes. And I love that you use the word civil. <laughs> Civility. Yeah. Ah, one more endangered species. We're not species. getting that from everywhere in this society nowadays, are we? No, that's for sure. Well, let, let's talk about what your new book is about and a lot of the work that you're doing these days. What is effective altruism? Effective altruism is uh, a philosophy, a way of living, uh, but it's also a social movement. As a as a way of living, it's the idea that one of our aims in life, not necessarily the only aim in life, but one important aim in our life, ought to be to make the world a better place, to think about others, uh, to think about um, doing what you can, in fact, you know, perhaps doing the most that you can, as I say in the, in the title of that book, the most good you can do, not just doing something to make the world a little bit better, but but doing as much as you can to improve the lives of other beings on the planet now or others who will exist on the planet in future. Uh, and effective altruists want to live that way and um, they find it rewarding, satisfying and fulfilling to live that way uh, and then they, they discuss with each other often online what's the best what's what's the best way to do that what are the things that you can do which will contribute to making the world a better place and they talk about causes like uh, global poverty and what you can do about that they may talk about the treatment of animals and, and what you can do about that as well uh, a whole lot of different things they they'll, they just explore a lot of a lot of different possibilities and, and ask themselves the question well how much how much good does that do what is what is that achieving and uh can how can we do that better so uh so that's as i say it's both a philosophy and a movement and if you google effective altruism you'll find a lot of websites that are um about discussing those issues and uh encouraging people to get together and talk about them when i was in my 20s i worked for a society magazine in Kansas City my hometown and a lot of the articles that I wrote were about privileged people there making large donations to all sorts of things. But I started to see a pattern 
that most of these large donations were to buildings that would bear the name of the giver. And I was thinking about some of these issues that we're talking about now, about poverty, about suffering, and wondering why it seemed that so much of, of the money, at least that I was seeing going into philanthropy, was going to things that didn't seem all that important, which may have been judgmental on my part. Where do you put I think all you this be judgmental in about these altruism? things. You know, we're, we're never going to uh, make progress and improve if people just say, uh, well, I'm not going to judge what you're doing. Um, I, think, I think we ought to be you know, doing so again, respectfully, politely, but, but saying, look, um, you know, is that the best thing you could be doing uh, with with whatever it is, the, the money, the time, if you're volunteering, you know, uh, maybe there's something that would do more good and maybe you want to think about, about that. How do you judge how much good something is doing? Well, there are you know, some cases where I think we can make that judgment pretty uh, easily and clearly and other cases where it's much more difficult. But, um, you know... So one of the things that I think and many effective altruists think does a lot of good is to help people in extreme poverty in developing countries. Um, other people give to causes here in the United States. Uh, and I think it's it's often pretty easy to see that our money goes further and does more good in developing countries than in the United States. So, so let me give you just one uh, example of that. There's, there are charities in the United States that uh, ask for your donations to train guide dogs to help people who are blind. And you know that's probably a pretty standard example of what many people would say, well, that's a really good charity. We should, we should help people like that. Uh, and of course, it is a good thing to help people, but it's expensive. It's surprisingly expensive. Uh, it costs about $40,000 to train one guide dog to be a suitable helper for a, a blind person and, and of course you have to train the blind person to work with the dog as well so it's expensive because that labor doesn't come cheap now in developing countries there are many people who are blind because of a condition called trachoma uh, which is a kind of microorganism that gets in the eyes of people in countries that are hot and dusty and where hygiene isn't really good uh, and it it gets in the eyes of children and slowly slowly they go blind they may not be blind fully blind for 20 years or more after they get it but they will go blind and then they'll be blind for the rest of their life we can prevent this uh, quite inexpensively we set up clinics where children are we simply uh, wash their eyes with a solution that um, that gets rid of the microorganism and they're not going to go blind now that costs doesn't cost $40,000 to prevent one of these children going blind it doesn't even cost $400 um, it probably costs somewhere around a hundred you know I've seen estimates going as low as $25 per case of blindness prevented other estimates go higher but you know let's let's say it costs a hundred dollars um, then you could prevent for the cost of training one guide dog for someone in the help someone in the United States you could prevent 400 people becoming blind and I think it's pretty easy to see that you do more good by preventing 400 people becoming blind than you do by providing a guide dog for one blind person. Yes, indeed. How about it in the animal rights movement? 
how well, do we best yeah, use so our money the there? Movement, the, the, yeah. So I think there's another really interesting example where you can see where you can do most good and, and, and that something is really a little bit astray with where money goes in the animal rights movement because if if you uh, draw up a chart of which causes get the most money uh, in the animal rights movement, maybe you know, imagine doing it as a as a graph where they fill up space on the page depending on how much money they get. So most of that page would be filled with money that goes to dogs and cats, basically to shelters for abandoned dogs and cats, or to helping dogs and cats in some way or other. Um, and if you looked at the amount, uh, if you filled in a little space uh, equivalent to the amount of money that goes for uh, farm animals, it would be a small dot on the page compared to most of the page being filled up with this money going for dogs and cats. On the other hand, if you look at where the most suffering of animals is, it would be the reverse. In fact, the page would be almost entirely filled with uh, farmed animals because their numbers just so vastly outweigh the numbers of dogs and cats that there are altogether, let alone the dog number of abused dogs and cats in need. Um, and and yet there's so little money going for this. And, it, and it's not because there's nothing we can do about it because there's, you know, it's, it's very clear that organizations that work for farm animals, uh, whether it's uh, big ones like the Humane Society of the United States or uh, somewhat smaller ones like uh, Mercy for Animals or Farm Sanctuary uh, or uh, smaller ones still like the Humane League, um, they have been very effective at uh, getting corporations to, for instance, pledge to not buy eggs from caged hens, uh, at uh, getting conditions in factory farms uh, improved by, again, by commercial pressure, or let's say, as happened earlier this month, at getting Californians to pass an initiative that will give all of the farm animals in factory farms in California more space to move around, which is going to make their lives better. And so, you know, here we're talking about things that are affecting literally billions of animals, uh, and yet still not nearly enough money going to make people aware of how those animals are treated. Is it true that if one has a small amount to give, one should look to a smaller organization so so that your money doesn't just get lost in all of the thank you notes they're going to be sending you for five years? Well, uh, I agree that it's very annoying when... Uh, you know, they organizations wastefully mail you out a lot of letters. One way to prevent that is um, if you do have a modest amount, just give it to one organization. Don't split it um, so that you, you know, just one organization has to have the administrative costs of sending it out and uh, thanking you for it. Um, and I think it's often the small organizations are the best. Uh, if you're interested in the most effective charities, have a look at a website called um, Animal Charity Evaluators. That's for effective charities helping animals, uh, uh, animalcharityevaluators.org, and you'll find their recommendations. Uh, and that reminds me, by the way, uh, I was talking about global poverty earlier, and I'd like to mention the lifeyoucansave.org and givewell.org, both of which uh, evaluate charities uh, that are helping to reduce global poverty and helping people in poverty, uh, and will tell you the most effective ones to give to there as well. Okay. 
Excellent. And we'll put those in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net as well. So I want to ask you you a devil's advocate question. You were speaking a moment ago about some of these initiatives that are making things better for animals currently in the food system. I know people, and I'm sure you do too, who say that just makes people complacent, that just keeps the system going longer. We really need to only be working for widespread veganism how do you answer that argument uh look i think that unfortunately animals are still going to be reared and eaten and kept in factory farms for the next decade at least and i think it's optimistic to think that we'll end it within a decade and uh i would you know they're going to suffer, and I think anything we can do to reduce their suffering is good. Um, they they can't wait for the abolition of of factory farming uh, or of meat eating altogether. Uh, they're going to be dead long before that. So um, I think I would need really strong evidence that we're somehow going to slow the abolition of meat eating by somewhat improving their conditions. And honestly, I looked at I looked for this evidence. I just don't see any evidence at all that that's true. In fact, if you look at places where uh, there are there have been reforms for factory farming, you know, California is now an example. Uh, uh, European Union has had has had reforms. Uh, the United Kingdom, of course, is part of the European Union too. Uh, and ask yourself: so are there fewer vegans in these places because people are more complacent? Um, because there are these reforms, are there fewer vegans in in states like California where they've passed this legislation than there are in states like Texas where they haven't passed this legislation? Of course not. Um, in fact, it's it's the other way around. Uh, the the publicity for the legislation in California, uh, both for this initiative in here in in this year, just earlier this month, and uh, an earlier initiative in 2008, it enlightened millions of Californians as to how animals are treated in factory farms. And I'm sure it helped to uh, persuade more of them to become vegan than uh, if that initiative had never been on the ballot. Mm. So is it important in, in our giving to to give a specific percentage? And, and what percentage is that? Is it 10% like a lot of religious people do? Or does it depend on one's income? How do you figure that out? Uh, I think it depends on one's income and one's personal circumstances, not only income, but also, uh, you know, the commitments you have, the, the financial commitments you have. Uh, how many children do you have? You know, are they, are you going to need to pay college fees for them? Uh, uh, those sorts of things are, are clearly relevant. I think that the 10%, the tithe, is a nice round figure. Um, when I started thinking about what I should do for people in global poverty, uh, which again, was in the early 1970s. Uh, my wife and I started giving 10% of our income, uh, just hitting on that as a traditional kind of figure. But, um, but as, we, uh, as we became older and we earned more um, and we moved back to Australia where fortunately you don't have to pay college fees uh, uh, and uh, you know, we were able to increase that and uh, now our children are adults, we've been able to increase it still further. So I don't think you should stop at 10%. Um, it's a good starting place if you can manage, but if you feel really you can't manage that even, well, start start somewhere lower, but just start somewhere. And then like, you know, like people when they go jogging, 
they're pretty slow the first time, but they hit time the time yourself, and you think, oh, I'm going to work up to doing that better. So yes. same thing. Start off low and uh, work up to giving more as you get more used to it. And if you could talk a little bit about how that feels, I'm reminded of a literary agent that I had about a decade ago, and she was very privileged, and she said to me once with a sparkle in her eye, you don't know what it is to live until you can give money away. (laughs) (laughs) So does that put a sparkle in your eye too? Yes. Sorry, I didn't catch the last thing you said because I was talking over the top of you. Can you just Oh, uh, no, that? I was just saying, does that put a sparkle in your eye too to whenever you're able to contribute? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I really um, enjoy being able to give and enjoy being able to to support the wonderful people who are working to help people in extreme poverty and and to know that I'm making a difference, you know, and and when you think about uh, the things that I might otherwise be spending my money on, which which I don't really need and would clutter things up, um, you know, that's that's we're, we're all encouraged to spend more now to con- to consume more. There's so much advertising that uh, tries to encourage us to buy things we don't need, uh, and I think in a way, living a, a simpler life in material terms and uh, doing something more meaningful with your money and and with your time, if you've got time to volunteer. Uh, is a much more fulfilling life for everyone. Hmm. So what about the day-to-day practicality? My day-to-day practicality living in New York City is that there are homeless people or people purporting to be homeless everywhere. I learned from one friend, uh, she puts $2 in her pocket every morning and the first two people who need the money or ask for the money they get the $2. And she feels that after that, she's paid her dues for living in New York City for that day. I am completely overwhelmed. And sometimes I feel like, well, I just gave money to somebody who didn't look that awful. And this person looks like they really, really need it. So what do I do now? How do you deal with these kinds of of moral arguments in your own head? Yeah, um, you know, I think to really know whether you're helping a homeless person who you're giving money to in the street would take quite a lot of time and investigation as to, you know, as you said, you said people purporting to be homeless. So some of them uh, are and perhaps not even homeless. Some of them um, will tell you a good story about how they need the train fare to get home. And, uh, you know, this actually happened to my wife. She she gave them, you know, $14 or whatever they were asking for. Um and uh, it was a very plausible story. A month later, she's coming to the same train station at the same time. She gets the same guy and the same story. Uh-huh. So basically, she she knew she'd been conned. Um, now, you know, I mean, I don't think that happens a great deal, but it certainly does happen. But there are other people, of course, who you give them money, they're, they're going to spend it on uh, drugs or alcohol or something like that, which is not really doing them a lot of good either um, and is helping to... to you know, the, the, the money goes to the criminals who are selling them drugs if it's if it's drugs that they're getting. So I actually don't give to people in the street um, because I don't have the time to investigate their circumstances and think whether that would help. Um, I give to, as I say, the, the the organizations that I know are going to be effective, the ones listed on thelifeyoucansave.org, which is an organization that I founded, though I don't actually run it. Um, 
but I know they've done a lot of serious research into the charities on that on that website, and uh, so I know that what I'm doing is is doing good and is helping people who really, you know, don't have the possibilities. Of course, you know, people in, in homeless people in New York are living in dreadful circumstances. But but when you think about it. Um, they do have opportunities. They may not be able to take advantage of them because of their circumstances, but for one thing, they have safe drinking water everywhere. Um, they have a shelter if they want to go to it. Um, that may be tough if they're on drugs, um, but they, they do have shelter somewhere. Uh, you know, they know they can get food. They're not, they're not going to starve to death. Um, so... Uh, and and they even they even have healthcare. Right? If they show up at the emergency room of a hospital, they can't be turned away if they have a life-threatening condition. So uh, I know it's it's it sounds harsh to say it, but but in some ways they are really better off even living on the streets than than people in extreme poverty in in developing countries. My two dollars a day just shifted to one of these organizations <laughs> that good, you talked good. about. But of course, yeah, yeah. Just very put, quickly put in together, our last um, few you minutes. Know, save it up every day and uh, put it together in a sizable check so that they don't have to thank you for every two dollars. <laughs> That's right. Good idea. Last weekend, I, I was in Chicago showing our wonderful new documentary, A Prayer for Compassion, which is to introduce animal issues to people who identify as religious or spiritual. I'm so excited about it. But anyway, my lovely driver, and she was indeed lovely, told me on the way to the airport that she was not an organ donor, that she didn't fill that part out on her driver's license because she was concerned that perhaps her organs would keep alive a hunter. What do you as a philosopher do with that? So firstly, um, why pick on a hunter, right? If uh, I expected you were going to say meat eater. Um, and personally, if I had a choice between, you know, if I had a choice between keeping alive somebody who walks down to the supermarket and buys factory farmed chickens or pigs or something of that sort, uh, or somebody who gets their meat by um, shooting deer here in Princeton, um, and let's assume that this person is a, is a good shot, and kills the deer instantly. Um, I'd rather keep the hunter alive. You know, now I'm not saying that I approve of of, of shooting the deer, uh, but I do think that uh, the deer have a much better life than the factory farmed animals, and they die more quickly and painlessly if the guy is a good shot. So um, I I think that that's what we ought to be thinking about. Uh, people who support factory farming are doing more harm to animals than people who nourish themselves by hunting. Uh, but, you know, thinking of the issue, um, well, I don't know. I, I think in a way that's, you know, I can, I can understand that view that you don't want to support people who are cruel to animals, responsible for cruelty to animals. Um, but I think it, it's such a hostile attitude to humans that you're not really going to, to win friends and persuade people to have a better attitude to animals by, by doing that. Yeah, I think there are enough hostile attitudes around. We probably don't need to add to that. In in our last minute, first, thank you. Thank you so very much, everyone. Get this book, this wonderful new book from Peter Singer, The Most Good You Can Do. Professor Singer, what what's left? What do we need to know? Oh, what do we need to know? Well, 
Uh, I think, you know, we've been talking about a lot of bad things happening in the world, but, but let's be a little positive. There are a lot of good things happening too. There are a lot of movements like effective altruism, like the animal movement, uh, like the vegans uh, who are doing good for the world and are enjoying it, being positive about it, gives meaning and fulfillment to their lives. They're, they're happier people because of what they're doing. So, so that's one positive uh, aspect about it. And uh, I think we should, we should think of all of these movements in this way. It's an opportunity to make a difference to the world, uh, to live a more meaningful life than if you're just, uh, you know, buying a lot of goods and consuming them and uh, throwing out a lot of garbage and, and that's it. You can feel that you're doing something more worthwhile than that. So uh, I'd encourage your listeners to go out in the world and, and do good with that positive attitude. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And that is something to be grateful for this Thanksgiving week uh, and for wonderful people like you and, and your your work that has really changed this world and continues to do so. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting our program, to our composer, Rob Mills, and mostly to you, the listeners. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.